You are listening to the Kelly Confidential Podcast with Kelly Wilkes. This is episode 25. Welcome to the Kelly Confidential Show, where we talk negotiation essentials and those crucial conversations empowering extraordinary women. Real women, real issues. Let's jump in. Hi, friends, and welcome back. I hope you're having a great week so far. Mine's going pretty well. Uh, February is starting off quite um, productively, so I can't complain, and I hope the same for you. And this week, we're going to talk about representation. And yeah, I've got a couple of interesting topics to cover, so let's tuck in. I was watching a recent YouTube clip from a famous Ivy League school, which was posted on said famous Ivy League school's negotiation skills blog, where they expertly sell their many advanced negotiation courses. Now, I've been following the development of this school's negotiation program for, I want to say, probably five or six years now. And... Their website is still very traditional looking. The brochures, uh, because I received these in electronic form, um, are dated, I think is is probably a diplomatic way of putting it. They're certainly not eye-catching by today's, you know, glitzy marketing standards. You could even say that they're a bit clinical looking. But this school doesn't need to try too hard to entice audiences because their name alone is prestigious enough to sell seats in these programs. But this goes to the heart of why I follow this academy, because I'm observing how well they've adapted to the culture around them, how well they're reading the room, as I call it. And so I like to follow their material and I follow their monthly newsletters. Um, I read their annual brochures as well, and I watch their YouTube videos on occasion. Um, And I'm struck by how stuck in the 1970s some of these clips are, not just in the gender optics. This this program is led by a predominantly white male faculty, but also by the language they use, such as controlling the narrative and when we make this next move and so forth, which implies gamesmanship and some old school approaches to manipulating the environment. And I'm fascinated and really validated by the audience members who remain unchanged since the 1970s. In this particular clip, which I've included in my show notes, the student archetype, I guess for lack of a better term, um, subscribed to this expensive course, which is in the thousands of dollars for a mere couple of days, depending on which program you sign up for. And it's, well, it's all men, mostly white, um, not all, but mostly white um, men, middle-aged men. And I find that interesting because this course is for modern day business people, right? Both, both genders. But is it just interesting or is it more than that? I think it's more than that. In this public clip by an American Indian professor of law at said Ivy League College, which per the date on the slide puts this older event at 
2011. Yeah, that's like 13 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. And they still think this clip is relevant. Anyway, he in this clip, he works the room sort of expertly flicking slides on the screen with his wireless clicker and maneuvers through examples of managing the room, making the next move, which is about plotting the right place to sit in this anticipated boardroom negotiation he's teaching. And he recommends that folks sit next to each other rather than opposite each other to manage any growing adversarial tensions, which is technically good advice and advice we also follow and advice I give in legal mediations and negotiation, technical how-to, as the seating placement can definitely increase or decrease conflict tensions in the room. But that's not the point. The point is that the attendees appear to be all men, led by a man. And as I said, I've been following this faculty for a while, and they are a truly respected academy. Um, But I also follow the faculties of a number of other major academic institutes that sell negotiation programs because they have a common marketing model, um, which stands out to me, and this is why I follow them. And this model is built for a singular archetype which is a white male. And so what's the problem with that? I mean, it says so much that that the video they're promoting is from 13 years ago, and it's still played prominently on their primary negotiation program page. But what is the message all of these expensive universities are saying about negotiation skills training? Well, firstly, the expensive price tag suggests this is going to be a highly specialized niche program, and really only the elite, the best of the best, should aspire to it, as otherwise, why charge so much, right? Because negotiation is so niche, right? It's right up there with brain surgery, right? I mean, come on, it's not. And that mindset is just so crazy and so dated. But so they're saying through their advertising and through the high price tag that only special wealthy people should apply. And then they're saying girls stay away. True inclusivity and not one of tokenism means reflecting back a balanced representation of all interested groups. So, yeah. And where is that? And so I find this whole area really concerning because it polarizes viewpoints. And by virtue of this unchanged male-specific marketing, it maintains this chauvinistic view that girls can't negotiate. Kicks like a girl kind of slang comes to mind. So they don't invite you to the team? I have so many issues with how negotiation skills are taught to children and adults There isn't enough time to unpack all of that in this show, but trust me, I'll be talking about this a lot this year. But is it a fair leap to say that if we're not teaching all parties how to negotiate, if we're favoring a certain group as as a target audience, doesn't that then mean that the other group is left behind in these critical skills? Of course it does. This is part and parcel why the U.S., the U.K., and most developed countries passed desegregation laws and affirmative action plans 
so that minority groups and women had fair access and representation to all of the same resources enjoyed by their their white male counterparts. Representation is critical. You need to see it to be it. People and young people especially aspire to be what they can see. And we know this is true even looking at the phenomenal impact the Jeffersons, the Cosby Show, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air had on stereotypes of African-American families in the United States. Never before had the U.S. seen streamed into millions of households wealthy African-American families living a relatively normal life, an affluent life, but a you know, reasonably normal life, upper middle class, the American dream style. And even though there were many such wealthy families living their lives just like that in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but the American culture kept that out of mainstream media for decades because of bigoted views of what should be on TV. When producers first aired the Archie Bunker show, All in the Family, in the 70s, audiences went wild and not in a good way. When outspoken, arrogant, and wealthy George Jefferson arrived on the scene, an African-American character, the complaints were off the charts, so much so the producers felt certain they would be shut down in their first season. But the writers, listening to the quietly changing vibe of the nation, persisted. They, they knew they were on to something that was right and that resonated with what was happening And the show went on for years, earning critical and commercial success. And it had a huge impact. Why? Because millions of young African-American children also watched these shows. And it was the first time they saw their image on an otherwise all-white dominated TV world where the only African-American characters they'd seen on TV before then were in you know, minimal roles or as extras or more commonly as the criminals being caught by white police. Similarly, look at how the show Will and Grace, look at what it did for representation of gay and lesbian people and the LGBTQ communities. It was first aired in 1998, and it took the U.S. and the world by storm. Of course, gay and lesbian people existed eons before the show aired, but there was no representation and therefore very little voice legally to ensure fair treatment of gay and lesbian individuals, especially at work. And yes, The Ellen Show was on at that time too, um, famously made by Ellen DeGeneres, but she hadn't yet come out as a lesbian on the show or really in, in mainstream life, you know, openly, publicly. And partly because um, she was afraid of the backlash And at that time, only about a quarter of U.S. states had codified rights for gay and lesbian individuals to protect them from being fired for their sexual orientation. Will and Grace went on to run eight seasons and 216 episodes and earned 18 primetime Emmys. But more importantly than that, it helped to shape the minds of policy and lawmakers in Washington to push for equal treatment, equal representation, That's what we're talking about here is representation at a federal level to ensure individuals weren't discriminated against, to be treated like their heterosexual colleagues. So what would have happened if Will and Grace never made their show? Or if it was even, I don't know, 10 years later? 
Millions of people in the U.S. wouldn't have had same-sex marriage rights. It would have been delayed on, uh, what date was it? June? It was June 2015. The U.S. Supreme Court removed all state bans on same-sex marriage, making it legal for partners to finally marry in all 50 states. They finally had federal protections. Representation matters. And so let's take this a step further, sticking to the gender topic. What happens when you specifically sideline someone? In this case, what if you take tokenism one step further and actually subvert a woman's view because of her gender? This has far-reaching consequences for that woman, her community, that business, and the economy. We all know this. The UN Gender Index, which I talk about a lot, measures this every year. And every year we're reminded by how much these sexist perceptions hurt whole communities and their economies. And there's a great standout book called The Mother of Invention by Katrine Marcal, which I just uh, blogged about on LinkedIn last week, which chronicles the really eye-opening and very real historically accurate cases of innovations that were put forward by women. So inventions, ideas, designs put forward by women only to be ignored in some cases for decades or to have their ideas stolen. Um, I've mentioned this book before. It's such an important read. It will stay with me forever. Um, so please check that out. I've, I've put the link to her book in my show notes. And how about, let's look at a very, very specific example. Um, and this is, this is a difficult one, um, but really important. And that's why I've, I've brought it to you here today. Let's look at a very specific example of the dangers of leaving women out of the discussion. There was a remarkable article by the BBC that came out just a couple of weeks ago. Um, again, I've included the link in the show notes and it's bothered me so much And I've been chatting with my friends about this as it's such a profound example of the dangers of tokenism and the lip service paid for true gender equity in the workplace, you know, and not just the stats published on some glossy corporate diversity page. I mean, that is tokenism where you're, you're just trying to reach your quota, but you're not actually including those voices. Um, And this story is about the Women's Border Intelligence Unit in the Israeli Defense Forces. This is a group of young women um, who worked shifts monitoring via highly um, high-tech special surveillance cameras positioned all along the Gaza border. Their sole job was nothing else but to watch the movements of people, farmers, etc., Um, along the border walls and to record in a daily log um, and also escalate any unusual behavior or increased activity um, and to report it. So any change from the norm. And for the most part, these are fields. So there's nothing really happening along these, these border walls. These are like, this is like farmland. So if, if things started to suddenly pick up, and you, you saw a bunch of activity in this farmland, I think, yeah, it would stand out. Anyway, so their job was to monitor this 24-7 and report it in a log. 
The article explains that there are several of these surveillance units, all made up of young women, totally made up of women aged in their late teens to early 20s, all stationed in command posts within one kilometer of the border. So they're, they're watching from cameras that are observing, they're, they're watching on screens, I should say, um, live streaming from cameras that are positioned all around the, the border walls. And they're in these command um, posts uh, near to the border. None of them were armed. They don't carry guns. Despite being part of this elite IDF group, they had no um, they had no guns or arms of any kind. In an article published by the IDF in September, which was just before the attack um, on Israel that occurred in early October, the IDF talked proudly about this group of women um, as being part of you know their elite intelligence unit. And yet these young women, because remember this unit was made up of entirely, it's, it was entirely female. And they had been reporting for months prior to the attack, unusual activity, um, including mock hostage negotiation exercises and what they called strange movements by farmers running parallel to the border walls. Um, and they would know because this was their sole job and nothing Nothing was taken seriously from this. And some of the young women mentioned in this article, those that survived the attack, as um, many didn't, have since shared that their reports went without notice, like literally just disappeared into a black hole. And, And because it was their job, they just kept repeating what they were seeing. You know, they just kept at it. But because they they didn't get feedback, they weren't getting questions, they would um, share, you know, with their friends and loved ones, their growing concern and, and frustration that nobody was responding to these heightened alerts, not even to ask questions or for more details. So ignored were their, their voices. And the young women in these units were said to be quite close um, because it was fairly isolating. You know, they were out there with just, you know, a number of other um, soldiers in these command posts and they had established friendships. And in addition to socializing outside of their rotation duties, they also kept in touch um, through a WhatsApp group. And while the IDF has since denied that alarms were being ignored uh, by this unit specifically, Um, These women cataloged in their WhatsApp group, which has now um, come into the public, many of the things that they were seeing weeks ahead of the actual attacks. These specifically highlighted their um, growing concern, their surprise um, in what they were seeing, the increasingly aggressive military exercises they were seeing um, happening immediately on the other side of the wall. So not just out in a field near the wall, but right up against the wall, um, which included mock raids on a tank, several small explosive exercises, um, one of which um, later proved to be one of the precise um, explosion points and and entry sites um, during the attack. This BBC article was not the only account showing that warnings from within the IDF went unnoticed. 
The New York Times published an article highlighting similar failings. But what stands out to me um, is that these women were on the front lines. Their sole job was to raise the warning. That was it. That was their job. That They had no other task. It was an intelligence unit. And the their product, the thing that they actually were paid to produce day in, day out, was ignored. Their warnings were ignored. The extra and in some cases extreme caution they they were trying to put forward just was just excluded several retired and current idf military leaders have since acknowledged they should have listened to the warnings but very few appear to be on record to explain the phenomena of an entirely female unit being ignored the whole unit And all of their added warnings, their heightened um, reportings went went without commentary, questions, follow-up. It's extraordinary and it's very sad and, yeah, it's tragic that it was avoidable. Um, Time in the history books will tell. But representation is critical. We must have a seat at the table, and it must be more than tokenism and annual quotas. Women must be part of the dialogue that shapes our communities and businesses and allows us to flourish confidently on our paths and in our careers. We must be seen and we must be heard for it to mean something and for the true benefit of a balanced voice to be felt. Everything else is lip service, and I know we can all do better men and women alike, by asking to see and hear that balance. We want to see the representation. We want to be part of that representation. This episode is dedicated to the women trailblazers out there creating the images and representations we're seeking, asking the big questions, and hustling for a seat at the table. Don't give up. We see you. Folks, thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the show and I hope you will join me for the next one where I'm interviewing author and money coach Christine Walsh, who shares some revolutionary insights about women and money that you won't want to miss. See you then. If you liked my show, please give us a like and follow us and be sure to share with your friends and colleagues. 